what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. We found that the key sales mindsets that you need to have are, first of all, authenticity and client centricity. These are the foundation blocks that every salesperson should have. It's the ability for a salesperson to be one's true self with the customer and putting them at the heart of all their sales activity. And proactive creativity and tactful audacity are the differentiators. These are the main values that will set apart one salesperson from the rest. It's the potential to come up with new ideas that customers have not thought of themselves, as well as the art of knowing how far to go without going too far. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, will only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean, or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key values in your approach. If you would like to learn more about the sales mindsets, get a copy of my latest book, Selling Transformed. It's available on Amazon and at Waterstones and Foils, where we go deeper into the topic. There will be links to both the book and the mindset survey in the show notes. Now let's get on with the episode. Welcome uh, to this uh, next podcast. It's uh, based on a recording of a conversation we had with uh, Cranfield Business School, myself and Ryan O'Sullivan from IntraHive talking about a new concept of relationship capitalization and it's the interesting exploration of whether it's potentially possible to put a a financial and balance sheet value on the relationships we have with with our key accounts. Um, It's an introduction also to a topic that will be more fully explored at our global sales transformation event at the London Stock Exchange on the 7th of October. This is where we uh, invite sales leaders to come together to talk about matters that uh, have more strategic impact on sales and sales leadership in the years to come. It's all always quite futuristic in its um, in its themes and its agendas, and it always involves bringing together some pretty amazing speakers. There will be more information about the event as time goes on, and we're going to give you some information in the in in the podcast or in the notes to the podcast about how you might want to sign up to the event so the link will be in the show notes below we've got two fantastic speakers uh who are going to be helping us today um so we're going to be looking at cam and relationship capitalization something that i've often wondered about and um how you quantify uh the strength of the relationship and the, the value it's adding to your organization. So how do you quantify and measure value with, of each customer relationship? 
two experts, uh, Dr. Phil Squire, who has a, a long-term friend of Cranfield and the CAM Forum, uh, Phil, uh, will be talking. Phil heads up a consultancy called uh, Consolia. Did his doctorate in uh, in the area of uh, sales and and relationships with uh, what buyers are expecting. So that's that's a fascinating topic in itself. But he's working with uh, Ryan O'Sullivan from Intrahype, and Ryan is a, an almost doctor. I think is uh, doing his doing his PhD with Portsmouth. Uh, coming towards the end of his doctorate, and that's what information he'll be sharing with us. I think Ryan's going to pick up the button and uh, run the presentation from his side. How are you, gents? Are you well, uh, Phil and Ryan? You okay? Very well. I think you very kindly uh, sort of done a short um, introduction of myself. I don't know if I need to say um, any, any more at this stage. I think we can sort of get on with the presentation, but I don't know, Ryan, do you want to say a few more words? Because I think, I think your background's a bit more interesting than mine, really. Well, thanks very much, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> You're teeing me up for something here, but yeah, nice to meet everyone. Very excited to have this, this conversation. It's definitely a, a subject which has provoked a lot of curiosity uh, for me, I'm uh, with Intrahive, as you'll hear a bit more about what, what Intrahive does uh, later on in, uh, throughout the, the session, one, one particular part. Uh, but my background in particular is around uh, understanding the value of existing relationships and how they can be leveraged. And uh, before Intrahive, I spent uh, eight years, uh, just over eight years with Infosys. A uh, big uh, IT services firm, consulting company, and that's where I, my passion for understanding relationships and 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 the value, which I think organisations really don't 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 see in a lot of ways. So we're trying to understand the relationships uh, that we have with with key deals and managing and researching uh, key executives on on strategic deals, and and then understanding that in a bit more detail on how how relationships are important and uh, measuring them when, when people move roles and things like that. So it's definitely a, a subject that I've devoted quite a bit of my, my career to. And, and uh, just over four years ago, I was uh, fortunate enough to, to, to bump into to one of Cranfield's own, uh, Beth Rogers. She was my, uh, my supervisor at Portsmouth and sent me on my way with, with my DBA, which you'll hear a bit more about as well as, as, uh, as the session unfolds. So, so thanks very much. And I look forward to, to, uh, to sharing some of my thoughts and, and hearing from you as well. So very much uh, want to make that clear that the questions are welcome. So um, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Al. So um, yeah, the topic uh, of today, as you've, uh, as you know, is, is on relationship. Well, not, relationship capital but um, relationship capitalization um, and uh, this is a this is a topic that um, yeah I've been kind of thinking about for quite some years um, and the structure of this session is going to be sort of perhaps introducing some angles to this topic that may not have been covered before um, I do know that I'm I'm on dangerous turf here because I know that those of you at, at Cranfield and in that wonderful book that you've created, um, Javier and Mark, I know you talk about um, how we start to look at key account relationships as assets of the business. And you do talk about 
um, ways in which key accounts could perhaps be looked at as an asset of the business. But I, I want to take the, the dialogue perhaps a little bit further um, with this, this conversation. So the structure of the session is what is our concern? When I use the word are, I'm really talking about Ryan's and my concern here and why are we concerned? Um, and then to have some kind of group discussion. Uh, and I know that's very difficult when you've got 90 or so people on a call and it's virtual, um, but we'll see if the chat function uh, perhaps can be used to get some of your thoughts on some of the topics it will cover. And as Ryan has mentioned earlier on, this will be um, sharing his um, findings from the DBA that he's, he's currently doing. So um, what is our concern? So I, I, just before I go through the next sort of bullet points is that, and to give you some context, is that um, from my experience in the world in which I'm operating, you occasionally come across uh, mergers and acquisition experts, you come across um, corporate finance people, and in conversations with them in the past about, well, how do you put a value on a, on a business and sort of learning more about the, um, the way, yeah, way in which value is calculated. Um, one of the big areas, which is a bit of a black hole is how do you value the intangible assets of a business? And when we start to think about intangible assets, there are a number of different components of that, but one of the components is actually the assets of your customers. Um, and it's a, bit of a, it's, a, it's a bit of an imprecise science because whilst there are financial methods of going about, about this topic, on, on further exploration of what those methods are, because I've spent time with them talking about, well, actually, how do you do it? Um, it, I, I don't think it's thorough enough. I don't. I just don't think it's uh, it's uh, it's a, it, it's a very precise way of going about it. So, so my concern um, is how do we start to look at the customer assets you may have, um, such that it would thoroughly pass um, a due diligence check at the point of business is being sold. Um, and I'll just give you an example of this, and it's current, this example. It's in the news at the moment. I don't know how many of you are following autonomy. And as an, as an example, um, I have a number of connections with autonomy. Number one, it's, a, it's described as, it was described before it was sold to Hewlett Packard as, um, one of UK's most exciting pure play software companies. And it was sold to Hewlett Packard in, in um, 2011. So in the autonomy purchase, autonomy was sold to Hewlett Packard for about $11 billion. Um, and one year later, HP made an impairment, which is the last thing that any board of directors wants to do when they purchased a company. Impairment is where you downvalued the asset of the business. And they made an impairment charge, I think it was of about 8 billion, of which 5 billion related specifically to the autonomy purchase. 
Um, and this had a, a huge effect at the time on HP's share price. And the fallout from this is still being written about in the papers. So the CFO has, uh, is now in jail. He's had to pay a $4 million fine. And uh, the CEO is still undergoing um, some investigations. I think they're trying to extradite him to the States. I'm not quite sure. So yeah, so uh, the CFO has actually been put in prison. Deloitte's, who is the auditing company, have just been fined, or uh, this is uh, um, recent, $21 million for audit misconduct. Um, this is what's happened to uh, HP's market value. And I, I don't know why this provoked some curiosity on my part. I suppose one is that I've got really fond uh, memories of working with HP. You know, I've worked with HP over many years. They're a highly ethical company. Um, the second is how on earth could you make a decision to buy a company for eight million, eight billion, sorry, 11 billion, and a year later, you know, write down five billion of that, just one year later. And, um, and so I've been following some of the kind of surrounding material around this particular story. The way in which turnover kind of represented um, the growth was, was fraudulent. Um, it, uh, it was fiddling hardware revenues, um, misrepresentation. They were getting their dealer channel to buy product and then with a the guarantee that they would buy it back later in order to inflate revenues. Um, it was quite, uh, you know, these are obviously incredibly serious allegations. And, um, and it kind of, Again, it made me come back to this question that I was raising is, is there seems to be um, some serious disconnect in the way that particularly key accounts are actually valued. And, and so um, I know that some of you are probably dying to ask some questions about this and please raise them in chat you know, if, you, if you want to ask any questions. Um, but but this is why this is why I'm concerned is that the whole process of actually how you allocate a value to a key account, which represents in many instances the majority of the goodwill of a business, um, you know how is it done and, and could it be done more effectively? Um, so in in further exploring this, because I'm, I'm not an accountant, I started my career in banking. So I've, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the topic. But one of the organizations that I went to, to talk more about this topic is, is in fact brand finance. And I asked the um, firm of, I, I've asked David, uh, its CEO, what his perspective is of the way in which the specifically the intangible assets reflected in, in key accounts, you know, 80% typically of the revenue of any business comes from 20% of its customers. Yeah, so um, it's done. And this is, his, this is his comment. The accountancy profession fully recognizes that customer capital is an asset, but is only willing to recognize it in the balance sheet post-acquisition 
because International Accounting Standard 3 makes it compulsory to recognize all acquired intangible assets in the balance sheet. However, the profession will not allow the recognition of customer capital and other intangible assets in the balance sheet if they are, in inverted commas, homegrown rather than acquired. And it's his point of view that this is a major reporting failure which needs to be addressed so, so that these fundamental corporate assets can be recognized in financial statements. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in taking this topic um, to the accounting profession and to start to look at what sort of metrics, if any, can be used to properly audit key accounts. Um, I, I mean, the way in which it's done typically by mergers and acquisitions experts and corporate, it, it's incredibly unscientific in my view. Um, so this is, this is the, the concern and um, I'm hoping with the support of friends, we can get this agenda more firmly on a professional agenda with the accountancy professions. So if we kind of move, move on, so what does um, relationship capitalization kind of mean? You know, and this is a definition, I'm not saying it's the right one, but it's the process to capitalize the value of client contracts and the network of people and the organizations that represent employees, clients, partners, and suppliers. And it's explained as the value created and maintained by nurturing and managing good relationships. Now in, in the doctorate that I did, um, my topic is on how customers want to be sold to uh, in, in, a, in a very basic level. And in the research that I've done, um, and, and still continue to this day to do, the, the data suggests that less than 10% of sales people sell in a way that customers want. So if that is the case, then you know, how safe is an account if the manner in which those relationships are built are built upon relationships that aren't, aren't that stable? So the angle here is not so much looking at how do you sell sort of the value of your solutions. It's, it's more looking at, yes, how do you assess the value of a, of a, of a customer um, on a balance sheet? You know, if an accountant were to, to put about how would they go about it um, beyond the metrics that they're currently using, which I'm not sure are are based on some of the good practices that we in the CAM community kind of know. know. Um, so yeah, so um, the definition here or the processes it's described suggests that it's not just about the financial value as, as, as a component of a metric that we can look at, but it's also looking at the relational side of how do we, how do we start to put some sort of metric around the complex relationships that there are between customers and employees and partners and so on. And this, this, is, this is the reason why we've 
also very interested in some of the research that, that Ryan is, is doing. Um, so if we move on, what I would be very interested to do before I share you some thoughts that we've got is what metrics can be used for relationship capitalization. And I'm sure you're not going to be short on giving me some thoughts on this particular topic. So I wonder if you could, in the chat button, could you just take some time to put into the chat function what you think are some of the metrics that could be used to measure the relationship capitalization topic that I've talked about. Then we'll compare your ideas to some of the frameworks that we're beginning to think about uh, to get some of, so you've got trust, um, customer lifetime value, yeah, business growth, the value of the brand, yeah, the quality of the relationship, revenue growth. So some, yeah, as they're coming through, we have some that are connected with uh, finance. We have some that are connected to trust. Um, we have some connected to customer engagement metrics, uh, sort of customer experience, I guess. Um, so we're really getting a very interesting range of potential ease of doing business. Yeah, disruptive collaboration. Um, disruptive, yes, uh, yes, disruptive. Actually, I think Ryan will have an interesting component <laughs> to that one on cognitive capital a bit later on. Uh, timeline, strategic point. Yeah, thank you. Actually, thank you for all of these. That's great. Monopoly, duopoly. Yeah, brilliant. Um, thank you. Um, what I'm going to try and do, which may be a bit tricky for me, <laughs> is just connected to some of the themes that we've actually looked at. Um, so what I've done, this is very much a, um, a discussion, which kind of shares some of the, the frameworks that we have. And I guess there are three different levels that I think we could look at this topic. One is the legal construct, um, the type of contracts that we have with our customers. For example, we could have um, very, uh, you know, sort of very good revenue that we may have generated from key accounts over the last couple of years. But, you know, what, what kind of contracts do we have with customers? Are they long-term? You know, how far do they go to the future? Um, kind of what breakout clauses do they have in their contracts and so on. So I think there's a dimension which is legal, which is to do a, a kind of study, you know, it, it, you know, of the kind of agreements that are currently in place uh, with the um, accounts that you may have, which will give you some kind of sense of the security of that relationship moving forward. So there's a legal dimension. Um, financial contribution. Um, I think some of you talked about um, lifetime value, uh, for example, in your comments. There clearly is a financial contribution. Um, I probably simplified this rather too much. What's the, you know, what sort of margins are we making? What's the future cash flow predicted for the accounts? Um, uh, and so on. Um, and, you know, how, how we discount those to today's value will give you a sort of indication of where we're at. 
And then we come to the relational contribution. And, and perhaps this is the most difficult area. The, the top two are, are pretty easy to audit. You know, you can just see copies of contracts. You can look at them, the financial contributions. You can look at the finance dimension. But the relational side is a bit of a, it's a bit of a, an intangible, if you like, science perhaps. You know, we've got where and with whom do relationships currently exist and is it at the right level? Um, I think sales has been relatively late served by technology if you compare it to finance and manufacturing processes. Uh, but CRM is definitely enabling us to make much better sense of where they sit. Now, what's the frequency of contact that we have with customers? Um, there are different surveys that we could do. I mentioned values and you mentioned trust and integrity, I think, in some of your chats. Absolutely. What, now, how, how much do our customers appreciate the values that we stand for? And do their perceptions of us as, as, a, as an organization and salespeople, does it reflect the values that they want um, to work with? And then we've got relationships throughout the organization and its employees and partners, the complexity of that. And I've got the source here is IntraHive, because this is Ryan's business. This is what he specializes in. And then you've got, you know, got net promoter score or customer experience scores, you know, um, that can actually help you measure relationships. So a combination of these, these uh, sort of three themes are the ones that we're beginning to think, you know, is there a science? Is there a a process that if you were auditing to put a valuation um, for valuation purposes, um, you know, what, what levers would you want to explore and look at? So these are some of kind of our initial thoughts. So I'm going to leave my, my session for now at that. Um, it's a topic that I think we would like to continue talking about. But uh, for Ryan to continue now looking at the relational side and share his insights and comments. So yeah. I'm going to hand over to you, Ryan. Thanks very much, Phil. So that was really uh, almost a top-down way of looking at things. And we had that quite cleverly segmented into the three different areas. And uh, relational contributions being the final one. And if you really think about that in the... In, with this concept of relationship capital and, and what does that mean and uh, from my perspective it's really about who knows who and how well do you know them and if we think about this at an organizational level or, or even one of your key accounts level you're thinking about what's the aggregate level of all of the relationships that our company has with that key account and if we could get a picture of that we would be able to understand the quality of that relationship. And, and just calling back to some of the points Phil was making earlier, and we talked about this, this whole concept of, of valuing a company and valuing the quality of, of revenue. And, and just to bring this to life a bit more, one, one of the analogies I use is you might have three accounts and they all might be generating $10 million a, a year each. Uh, but if you were can think about What's the relationship capital that's contained within each of those accounts, even though the revenue is the same? If you started to look at this from a relationship capital perspective about the, the, the density and the quality and the depth of all of the relationships in aggregate, 
you, you would see a very different picture. You might see one picture where you've recently won a big contract for 10 million or whatever it might be uh, over the course of, uh, course of several years. And you don't yet have that track record. You don't have that depth of relationships at the, at the right level. And then another account might be a long-standing account that you've built up over the course of the years from, from two to five to 10 and very different and deep relationships. So I think this type of thinking in relation to which, which of those accounts has the strongest level of relationship capital in the sense of which revenue, which of those 10 millions is the stickiest, which can you count on? And I think that's where I'm coming at this from is to understand that in, in a, in a much clearer way and have some logic to it. And the way I'd like to present this and the way I think about this is really from a bottom up. So we've talked top down. And if we think about this from, from our perspectives as people that are managing accounts, you've got your company and, and, and you as an individual that's working there. And you'd have one of your, your key client accounts and you'd have your the individual who, who you work with as your, your, your key contact there. What I'm saying is, how do you measure the quality of that relationship that you have with that individual? And there's, there's lots of different ways that that can be done. And just think for a second, how do you value that? What, how do you measure the quality of, of that relationship that you have in your mind now? And how does that compare to other relationships you have with other accounts or other relationships in the past? And, and what's going through your mind when you're thinking, why is this relationship better or worse? And what I'm trying to do is, is understand that and explain that. And it might well be that you have a one-way relationship where it's you pushing the relationship with this individual or it might well be a two-way relationship, which is obviously what we're looking for, where it's, it's very much a, a two-way street, a dynamic relationship. And when you think about the relationship strength, it might well be weak. You might think, well, this is a key person I need to know, but we don't really know each other that well yet. It's quite a weak relationship, which we need to make stronger, for example. And you may well have a relationship that you describe as being very strong, uh, but then you have the added complexity. Well, is it a good relationship? It can be strong where you know each other very well and, and you spend time together, your paths cross, you know a bit about each other's background. But actually, it's a bad relationship. For some reason, you just don't get along. It could be on a personal level, a professional level. Uh, heaven forbid, maybe your company has just messed up something very, very seriously and, and caused this person uh, potential heartache on a professional level, so you are not the flavor of the month. All of these things could turn against the, the actual uh, the flavor of that relationship, even though it may well be strong. And then obviously what we're really looking for is a good relationship where it's a strong relationship, but there's a lot of positive vibes. You're doing great work. You're, you're well received as an individual. But I think that in itself, for one relationship, is quite difficult to actually quantify. And I think uh, when we think about it like this and think about it, how would, how would we do that? And then if you add the extra layer on, if you're managing a key account, it's not just one person, you have your key contact, but imagine replicating that across the entire uh, uh, relationship network within a key account. It could potentially be hundreds of people if it's a, uh, 
a key account of, of a high value and you're the key account manager. So this immediately gets very complicated. And if we play it back onto the other side, which is when it gets interesting, which is you're, you're not one man or one woman. It's, it's a company and this is obviously a team sport. So if you then overlay all of your company's relationships from your C-level executives that will be meeting their C-level executives and the delivery heads and product heads and all the other types of people that, that your company would have in place that would have relationships with uh, your key account, it obviously becomes quite a complicated structure. And if we were able to, to get a measurement to say, well, actually, let's imagine for a moment we can do this and we can aggregate this up and we can take all of our relationships that, that we have as a company and put them together with all the relationships we have with the key accounts and have this score. At this, this present day, we have a relationship score. That would in itself be quite revolutionary, I think, to, to, to give you that metric. Uh, but then if we add the interesting perspective, which is, what happens if you're able to monitor that score and even predict its movement? So we can then see if that aggregate number is going up or down. It almost becomes like a stock ticker symbol. And you can see the relationship capital score going up and down. And I'll just pause for a moment here, just for us all to, to conceptualize this. If, you, if we were able to do that, and if you're able to do this for one of your key accounts and you're able to understand all of those relationships, how powerful could that be? And what would that enable you to do? And I think it becomes really a fresh type of thinking to have this perspective. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to put some, some comments in the chat. I won't, I won't see them uh, on my screen, but if, if there's anything interesting that, that Phil feels relevant to, to bring up, please do. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote though while, while we're waiting. So this is a true, true, true story from one of uh, clients we were doing some analysis for and I think the, the, the theme will resonate. So as we all know, when we're working on a bid, we're working to win a deal and it might well be a, a big deal for a new account and we bring out all the big guns and we've got all of the oral presentations of preparation in the old days there'd be drinks and, and catch-up meetings and coffees and all sorts of activities. So you imagine this score going up because you've got all the new relationships being made. You've got relationships that exist getting stronger and stronger and you win the deal. And what this client realized is after we've shown this insight is that actually it fell off a cliff because once the, the win, the, 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 they win, the windmill goes around, everyone's sort of patting each other on the back. And the relationship capital score just, just fell off a cliff because obviously people just went off back to their day job and onto the next deal and going back around their usual activities. And, and they didn't realize this was happening. And this obviously shone a light on the customer experience. And for, for, for a period of one, two, even three months while the delivery team was getting mobilized and all the other activities were happening in the background, this was falling down. And then obviously it just started to build up again. And then the delivery team started to be presented and, and onboarded and all sorts of other activities started to happen. And it was just a really interesting perspective for, for people to get around the relationships, only around the relationships. And 
and some of the other examples that that uh, that, that I see and and, and uh, experience in, in my role are around tracking new relationships. If we're looking to, to grow our key accounts, we can keep talking to the same people and getting better relationships with them. But how many new relationships are we making, and at what level are they at, and and which divisions, which lines of business? And you can start to then think about well. Why don't we align our relationships to the revenue from those programs and let's see where we have relationships with no revenue and let's use that for our white space strategies, things like that and monitoring relationships at risk because you can see well actually that's a key relationship. There's only one person from our side that, that actually has a, has a strong relationship with this individual and all, all sorts of other things can happen. And it just becomes just another lens by which to evaluate uh, the management of key accounts. And I think uh, I'll, I'll pause for a second in case there's anything in particular Phil wanted to highlight from the chat or just from, from what I've said. Um, Ryan, I think that it's interesting that, um, you know, we've had the word customer experience uh, that Mark has contributed and uh, you talked about customer experience. I think is as as you were um, alluding to the falling off a cliff, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sort of comment. Um, so yeah, I think we talked about that. I, I I posed a question which is around risk. You know, when you talk about multiple relationships, is there one one particular relationship which, if that was wrong, you know? Could it spoil it for everyone else? You know, if the two CEOs didn't get on, for example, does that, you know, if we start to measure multiple relationships, um, there may be some that are more important than others, so to think. And I, I don't know how that forms maybe part of your your kind of analysis or thought process. Yeah, well, when it's all layered up together, obviously you get the full picture. And if, if there are some problems at the top, so to speak, then obviously that needs to be addressed and you can you can make corrective action there. And I think that's the backdrop to what is the, the objective and sort of the, the backstory as to if we could do that, wouldn't it be amazing? But that's what led me to do my doctorate. I mean, I've been, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm just starting my fifth year, just really in the, I've said this for a while, but I'm in the, uh, the home straight, so to speak. So uh, all the data and everything else. So I'm really there quite close to, uh, to getting things done. But it has been quite a long and arduous journey, but it all started with this whole principle of understanding what the best of the best relationships look like. And I think for me, as, as a new business guy, that's where I've spent my career. I always understood that relationships were valuable. And if we had an existing relationship, that's a lot more valuable than no relationship. And if we understand that, and there's lots of data around to support that, we have our own, which is, is five times more likely that someone will meet you if, if there is a relationship, they're three times more likely to buy, and many other types of statistics of that nature. That's what sort of predicated me to understand this in a bit more detail. So what type of re existing relationships are there for us to, 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 to try and highlight the pinnacle of that? And you can have something like, for example, uh, a friend of mine or a colleague of mine knows someone at a prospect account, but that prospect doesn't know me mm. and he doesn't know my company. That's an existing relationship, but that to me is quite weak if we compare that to almost a pinnacle for me, which is what drove my research, which is 
if we have an existing customer who's worked with my company, who we've been successful with together, we've done lots of things that have enabled him to be successful in his, his own career, and he or, or she moves role either regionally, to internally, or to another company, which is probably more, more preferable to another client of yours or a prospect, that to me is the golden nugget that we want to identify. And as a new business person, uh, even in, in key accounts, you can obviously see these relationships move into your key accounts and then leverage them. So if I was thinking when I was at Infosys, a, a large 200,000 person, $10 billion company, if we could identify these golden opportunity, golden relationships, that would really create an opportunity for a, a, almost a separate new business channel. And I set out to understand well, what does this look like? And my doctorate uh, was, was centered around like understanding very complex, uh, high value relationships. So I thought about what are the most complicated relationships I can think about on a B2B level. And I came up with uh, the, the global, a global corporations relationship with its strategic IT services partner. Obviously, that is a very close hand and glove relationship. And one success of a certain deployment or management of certain internal and external systems is really dependent on the success of the client organization. So I thought that would be a good place to actually dig deeper. Mm -hmm. And uh, I interviewed uh, CIOs. So I was quite fortunate enough to get access to CIOs that have been sort of veterans in, in the industry of, of global corporations, large banks and, and uh, insurance companies, etc. And some of them had been in the business 20, 30, even 40 years managing uh, hundreds, if not of billions of dollars worth of spend per year with vendors. And, and I asked them a very simple question. I said, looking back through your career, think about the vendors you've worked with and obviously they've worked with a lot, which is the one individual within any vendor you've worked with that really pops into your mind now when you think about the best of the best, which face comes to your mind and let's understand what made that individual so special. What did they do that was different to everybody else? That even, even 10 years later, that's the name that comes and that was the case. And they, when we talked about that for, for 35, 45 minutes to understand what they did, how they did it, how they approached problem resolution, what was the organization and, and the context of the organization. And it was a really fascinating discussion. And, and I obviously created uh, my thematic analysis around that. And the framework that I applied to analyze and actually well, construct the interviews and analyze the data was with social, uh, social capital theory, which I'll talk a bit more about now and, and the different layers of that and, and how I think it's really pertinent to today's discussion and uh, how we, we can start to bring some sense and some, some quantitative and in some cases qualitative uh, uh, lenses to how we can potentially crack this problem of, of, of being able to, to, to quantify relationship capital. So. Uh, on, if, if there's any questions, as we say, they come. And uh, but I'm just planning now to show you uh, a slide uh, around what I came up with in relation to social capital theory. 
And I won't spend much time explaining the theory itself. There's lots of resources and the, 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 uh, the, the academic source of Wikipedia has a, uh, has a fantastic uh, definition and explanation of social capital theory, actually. But it's really about, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that, that really underpinned what I was thinking about when I wanted to, to interview these individuals and understand this space. And uh, there's lots of different interpretations there, but one that really resonated with me was, was uh, Napit and Goshal's interpretation of, of social capital theory. And, and they divided it into three different layers. First one was called structural capital. Second is relational capital. And the third one is cognitive capital. And uh, they're, all, they're very distinct, but they fit together very nicely, almost like a, like a cake. Uh, so structural capital, they described it as who you reach and how you reach them. And what that really meant for me was the type, volume and frequency of communication. And I think in, in our context, this is about, look, you have to communicate with someone to have a relationship with them. It's impossible to start a relationship if you aren't in some form of communication. So building that picture of the type and frequency and volume of those communications was important for me to understand what good looked like and to get that picture. And that really forms the basis of any relationship, doesn't it? When you think about it, you've got these, these, these methods of communication and those channels and and what happens when you're in, in that forum of, of communication is, is really important. That's when the magic happens here. And they describe relational capital as the kind of personal relationships people have developed with each other through a history of interactions. And this to me is the on the ground day-to-day -day activities that you're going through when you're meeting with someone on a day-to-day -day basis. And I just, put that together as trust. I mean, it's a bit more complex than that, but it's really about how you're building rapport, credibility and trust with that individual on a day-to-day -day basis. And the interesting one that, uh, that, that uh, Phil mentioned earlier is cognitive capital. And I look at this one really in the subconsciousness of the relationship. You're not really thinking about this and, and they describe this as shared representations interpretations and systems of meaning among among parties and what we i was looking for here is, is just things that you might not automatically think about so this was shared social background or maybe from the same city or you had some other connections that there was that there were maybe in the subconscious or maybe not front and center and common belief systems even share the same religion I was looking for hobbies, shared hobbies, shared interests, things like that, potentially bring someone together and uh, framed my discussions with these CIOs around this type of discussion. And I don't have a lot of time to go into everything, but obviously there's, there's four years work on, on one slide here, but I'm just going to give a bit of a flavor and then I'm going to go a bit deeper into the structural capital side. So unsurprisingly I'm, I'm assuming it's not a surprise for people to learn that in these very intense and uh, important relationships the key factors here were very clear channels of communication so they knew who they want who they needed to contact regarding what 
and just the high volume and frequency of communication of all types. And this was back before the current crisis. There's an awful lot of face-to-face meetings, face-to-face and, and locality was important. Almost all of the people that we talked to had the, the relationship they described as being the best was the one where they're in the same city where they could meet quite easily if they needed to. And there was a, a lot of complexity there, and but just open channels of communication, telephone, WhatsApp, calling, very much uh, uh, big levels of, of and high volume of communication, which I think is to be expected. Second one, which is quite interesting, when I asked them to think about the best person they've ever worked with, they could have thought about anyone, obviously, in their whole career, but almost without exception, the individual that they talked about and they, they identified was the person responsible for their most important project at that time. And some, some of the projects that they were, they were talking about were their career defining projects. So it, it goes again to reinforce the situation that if we want to build good relationships, we need to be talking to people about their problems things they're working on. And, and this is just the, the subtle link between high value relationships and clients problems is there for me. It's, it's almost 100% of the people who they talked about were on very significant projects for the, the CIO. And through this analysis, uh, there were a few things that came up around trust. Uh, the trust equation came out, which I'm sure you, you may well be familiar with, and, and James Davis's definition of trust came out from a literature review, but there were six themes in the trust as I describe it on an individual level. Uh, so what I would say there is self-orientation is one ability and credibility of, of the individuals was, was, was there, their effectiveness to get things done in the client organization and obviously in their own. Honesty was never in question. The unvarnished truth, the phrase was used a lot to describe these individuals, their commitment doing what they say they would, would do was almost never, never in question. And then benevolence and the fact of caring, being emotionally connected to the project uh, was there. And, and the interesting thing is that all six of these things were present for every single person. So it's almost a full house of they, you, know, you have to have all six of these, these, these skills and, and, and capabilities, if you will. That's what they were describing in almost the same type of way. So it was a really fascinating insight. But then on the organizational side, because obviously they can trust you, but it's, it's the company that's delivering. There are the three elements there, one around the organizational capabilities. So does the company have the, the, the credentials and, and the skill set and the people to do the job? Price satisfaction came up, which I'm sure uh, we're all familiar with. is the fact that look, we're not overcharging and they feel comfortable with the price, certainly not necessarily the cheapest price, but uh, the price that is fair. And then most importantly, service quality. This was far and away something that they all talked about. We, they had to deliver to the expectations. And this is obviously during the delivery. And this is predominantly in a services environment. So uh, doing what they were instructed to do and having this paranoia about that. So that is really is uh, the trust on an organizational level. And then finally here for the cognitive side, one takeaway again is every single one of these people were working together on joint documents, as I would call it. So 
it's not presentations and meetings and, and lunches and sort of uh, uh, going through different issues. All of them were working together, you know, had the opportunity to work together on different documents, maybe presentations to the board and things like that. So they described these late night scenarios of them sleeves rolled up in the office working on slides and want to use and this sort of thing. So I think this is a great way to build cognitive capital together because you understand how each other thinks, how each other works. So if, if one tip here is if you can orchestrate those types of scenarios with your clients, I think it's really a golden opportunity to build cognitive capital, which is a very strong thing. And a couple of other points just before I move on is strong work ethic over, overrode everything. There was, there was very little evidence that there was uh, common interests, common hobbies. There was nothing really that jumped out about that. But the one thing they said is the professional conscience. They were really wanting to get in there, get their sleeves rolled up and working to deliver the outcomes that were there. And I've, I've, point three here is around aligned personality and outlook. This is around, uh, I didn't delve into this for the personality profiling side, but it was language like, you know, we understood each other, we got along, we had the sense of feeling, we had the same sense of humor, that type of stuff I bundled together there to say, look, there was something there that needs to be explored a bit more. And the cultural fit at an organizational level, that wasn't a strong theme, but a, a fair few people talked about this sort of cultural level alignment from an organizational perspective. So that's almost sort of a, a whistle-stop tour, so to speak, of, of what, how I structured these conversations and, and the, the high-level findings. And what I plan to finish with is a, is, a, is a bit more detail on the structural capital side, because for me, this is the exciting one where there is an opportunity to measure this in a quantitative way. And uh, I'll bring that to life a bit for you and just explain a bit more about how, how that's achieved. <clears throat> so structural capital and what I've said here, look, the digital footprint and like it or not, we leave a digital footprint in almost everything we do nowadays. And there's companies like Facebook and Google making a lot of money uh, on that. So, I mean, we all, we're all acutely aware of that. And back to our example of the relationship between two people, uh, what we're able to do now on a structural capital perspective is to look at the type of communication. So you can send an email to someone, that's the type of communication they're going to respond back to. You're going to have a session uh, on, a, on a video conference or you're gonna do a, 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 a WebEx meeting or something like that. So you can have that type of interaction. You're also going to have face-to-face -face meetings, if not now, but we have to hope that at some point in the future, and, and certainly in the past, uh, this was really the, 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 the real essence of where real relationships have been built when, you, when you're meeting in person, and then obviously on the telephone. But when you're meeting in person, there's almost always a diary uh, invitation sent. So that is obviously a digital footprint again. And, what we're able to do is to look at the type and frequency of those communications and aggregate those up. And there's different ways you can do that. So if I'm doing all these types of things to a C-level executive compared to a junior person, that's worth more because they're more senior. That would be worth more to my company as, as a, a relationship. 
And again, the type I've just, I've just talked about. So if we were meeting face-to-face -face as opposed to emailing, uh, that's worth more. And frequency, so how often is this happening? Is it one email every now and then, or are we meeting for lunch and dinner and what have you quite often? Response time. So again, this is about this whole reciprocity of, of the relationship again. So it's, I'm emailing, is it one way? Are you responding in a timely way? And that would again give us a different perspective on the quality of that relationship. And, and the recency, obviously, if you're meeting more frequently in recent period, it, it potentially can count more than uh, having a few emails uh, in, the, in the last year or so, a few quarters back. So there's a lot more to it than that. And there's ways and means that this can be achieved to give a very quantitative perspective on a, the quality of a relationship one-to-one -one, and then back to what we talked about before, which is aggregating this up uh, to an organization to organization level. And I think you can then start to do some of the exciting things that, that we talked about before. So uh, that's, that's it from me, uh, Phil. I've got any comments that you wanted to make have been rambling on for the last half an hour so hopefully uh, people have found that enjoyable <laughs> thank you ryan there no, that was that was great but just to kind of summarize um uh we started off talking about the autonomy situation um i call it the sort of burning platform that there's not a precise science about the way we value accounts there's a there's an ethical i think and a financial consideration in this the ethical is what do companies do to disclose the value of relationships, um, particularly financially? And we, again, talked about the kind of economy story. Um, I think what's really interesting is now technology is enabling us to come a long way. I think in that last slide that you shared, Ryan, um, it kind of shows what can be done. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm, I've missed something along the way, but I'm not aware that any any organization has a has a particular dashboard that actually looks at measuring uh, relationship capital um, yeah I, th I think you know we're, quite often there's the talk about the gap between sales and marketing um, I think there's a big gap between finance and sales and um, finance generally mistrust salespeople <laughs> and, uh, and perhaps salespeople think finance block uh, a lot of important decisions. <laughs> Um, to get contracts moved through. Um, but I, th I do think there's a gap. Um, so I think um, this journey that, this, I think it is a journey. It, it would be really interesting to know if it's possible in the future for there to be um, some kind of accounting convention that's grounded in uh, a better science about key account relationships. Um, I think at the moment it doesn't serve its purpose well, as you can see from examples like the autonomy one and, and there are many others. Um, so um, I don't know whether it'll happen in my lifetime, but uh, I think it would be wonderful if there's an international standard on how we value key accounts that goes beyond just the financial metrics. Um, so I think that brings this session to a close as far as Ryan and myself is concerned. So, Mark, I'm going to hand back to you, I think. <laughs>
Thank you. Well done. Uh, silent, silent Zoom clap for everybody. Thank you. Excellent. So I hope you enjoyed the short introduction. Uh, we'll be going into more detail on these topics, as I mentioned before, at the event itself. Again, sign up to our newsletter to keep more informed and to get more content on relationship capitalization when it's published. Link will be in the show notes below.